0: Hearing about the well and what that is all about, this, this uh, service on Sunday evenings in Prionville for young adults, uh, kind of the postmodern thinkers. And, you know, folks, our piece of the Powell Butte history. That the Powell Christian Church heritage and legacy is so exciting. It's an opportunity to be a part of the movement. To see the gospel move forward in our time. Disciples being made. Lives being changed. People connecting and growing and serving and going. That's what our church is all about. Now, as we do that, just so you know, we're going to be doing things that we may not have ever done before, focusing on things that were not even on our radar 10 years ago. It's exciting, but some of us might get a little uncomfortable, a little fearful, because we've never done it like this before. But folks, any time that we take back ground from the enemy, it's exciting, and it's a little scary. I mean, let's talk about the well, for example, this new service that we're, we're beginning tonight Now, now I'm not saying that the younger folks in America are the enemy. I just know that the enemy has a lot of them in his camp right now. And it's time for us to say, you know what? It no longer works for us to just open up our doors and say, come on in. There's, There's a generation that does that. There's a generation that does not. And so we want to go to them. Now, what we're going to find there is, is a bunch of people living in a major cultural shift than yours and my world view. And one day, they're going to be the leaders of the church. But I wonder at times, because the enemy has such a, a grasp on that younger generation, I wonder if they're going to stick it out to become the leaders or if they're going to just kind of check it all under the pressure. Then I think personally, wow, I'm 51 years old. What business do I have speaking into the lives of this, this next generation, the postmoderns? I, I'm not as in touch with the 18 to 30-ish young people that we hope to reach. So can I be effective? Uh, am I going to be pushed, pushed away? Am I going to push them away? And then the idea across the board of discipleship that we are beginning to look at. Oh, what if what if that gets messy? You know, getting into the lives of, of younger people. Um, they got a different mindset than we do. That's, that might get a little messy. So what are we thinking? Uh, are we just spinning our wheels? Can we make a difference? But well, what I want you to see today is that despite our doubts and fears... No matter whether we're talking about what we do here on the Powell Butte campus or out there in the community with another service, the gospel, folks, has the power to sustain itself. Okay, We don't have to worry about defending the gospel. Ultimately, it's going to take care of itself. We're in the book of Acts, the history of the early church, to see what the early disciples were like and what they spent their time doing. And we're going to see here in Acts chapter 8 today, we're going to see how the power of the gospel is so great. It's got the gospel, yours and mine, the gospel that we believe in, has the power to save people. And it has the power to sanctify people. And, and, And if nothing else, that should give us the courage to go forward and really be the movement Because ultimately, the gospel is not just about us, is it? The fact that we've been saved, that we can get to go to heaven, that we have this relationship with God, it's not just about us, as we're going to see this morning. We're picking up the story in Acts chapter 8, and we're going to read, uh, starting in the middle of verse 1, it says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Now last week we saw the first martyr of the Christian faith, a man named Stephen. And as soon as Stephen is killed, we now see the early Christians realize that what they have put their faith in is dangerous. Not everybody is going to be welcoming it with open arms. A couple or three things that I want to point out just in these few verses. First of all, Stephen's death affected the community deeply. You see that these godly men are mourning for Stephen. And some people might be tempted to say, are we really sure we want to go here? Now somebody's died. You know, and, and you say, oh, it's all fun and games till somebody pokes an eye out. It's all fun and games until somebody dies. And now this becomes real. Okay? It affected the, the church. It affected the community. We also see a man who is going to be pivotal in the book of Acts. His name is Saul. He's the one who is breathing out these murderous threats. He's ravaging the church and putting men and women into prison. This is the guy who God is going to use, spoiler alert, um, in a a mighty way, because we will know him better by his Greek name, Paul, which means the short one. So I don't know if Paul was actually another name or just a, a nickname that he had. And then finally we see this, that the persecution of the disciples did not result in what Satan thought it would result in. It did not result in the church shrinking back and saying, oh, I'm sorry, we won't do that again. In fact, it, it, it results in them being dispersed from the region and then the gospel spreading. You try to stamp out a campfire. And as you're trying to stamp out that campfire, if little embers uh, get thrown off from the fire, watch out. Because you might try to stamp that thing out But all of a sudden, it will begin to spread like wildfire. You see, the Christians left Jerusalem. That's exactly what God had wanted them to do from the very beginning. But rather than being crushed, they were actually taking the gospel message out. Look at verse 4. It says, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. How odd that God would use circumstances that we might think are dangerous to actually show his power. To show that his message is powerful. More powerful than anything that the enemy will throw at us. He wants us to go. That's what he tells us in Matthew chapter 28. The Great Commission says, Go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all the world. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Up till now, there was no go. They were playing it safe. It was a holy huddle. They all got together. They all had everything in common. It was easy. It was nice. And God says, I wanted you to go. And since you haven't gone on your own, boom, there you go. And God uses the persecution to actually get them motivated to do what he wanted them to do and to become what he wanted them to become. Folks, we have a powerful, powerful gospel. Not just to withstand persecution, but now we're going to see in two events in Philip's life. Philip is going to be one of these seven guys that we looked at last week who was called on to serve tables or a couple weeks ago. And, And through these two events in his life as he is evangelizing... As he's being spread out and scattered, we're going to see that the gospel is power enough to save and powerful enough to sanctify. Let's first talk about the power to save. Look at verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. By the way, I find it always very interesting. Anytime anybody travels to Jerusalem, they're always said to go up to Jerusalem. And if anybody was leaving Jerusalem to go someplace else, they said they went down someplace else. Now, if you looked at a map, Samaria is actually north of Jerusalem. And yet they say that they're going down because Jerusalem was the pinnacle of the faith world to Jews. So anytime they left that place, they were going down. And Philip goes down to Samaria, okay? Now, many of the people who had been scattered, they might have played it safe and just gone to the people that they know, down to Judea, to, to the other cities around Jerusalem where the Jews were and they could be comfortable. But Philip decides to go north to the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, well, in Samaria, that was a place that was defined by ethnic and religious tension. Here's what you need to know about Samaritans. They were basically half-Jew. They were half-breeds religiously. Uh, Back after King Solomon's reign, there was civil war in Israel, and the kingdom of Israel broke up into two separate kingdoms. The kingdom in the north remained Israel. They, They remained with that name Israel, and the kingdom in the south was called Judah. Down in Judah, their capital city was Jerusalem, where the temple was. Up here in, in Israel, their capital city was Samaria. And though both Israel and Judah would be unfaithful to God, and God would bring about um, punishment and discipline in their life, Israel was the first to fall. God, in his judgment, gives them over into the hands of a people known as the Assyrians, a brutal people who would conquer uh, nations and then bring other people in to intermarry so that they could exert their their power over them. And there would not be any kind of national or political pride anymore because they had diluted the, the blood, if you will. And so, just like the Assyrians would want, the Jews began to intermingle with other pagan Gentile cultures and what was a mixture was not just a mixture of their blood, but a mixture of their faith. You see, God had forbidden the intermarriage between his people and the pagan people, not because of racism, but because he knew that they would have this temptation to water down their convictions, to water down their, their, uh, their, their devotion to God, to Yahweh, to Jehovah. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened to the people of God in the north. They're now all called Samaritans. That was a blanket label for any northern Jew who had become polluted by the world. And what they did was they would adopt pagan rituals as they combined their belief in God, Jehovah God, with these pagan practices. They'd compromised And because of those compromises, the Jews down in Judea had written the Samaritans off. To them, they did not deserve to inherit the promises of God anymore. To the Jew, the Samaritans were unworthy because of their sinful nature, because of their detestable practices. It got so bad that look at how they treat a guy named Simon in Samaria. Look at verses 9 through 11. Now for some time a man named Simon, this is in Samaria, had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, Oh! This man is the divine power known as the great power. And they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. Folks, this was not just tolerance. They weren't just tolerating this guy who should have been put to death. Instead, they were lifting him up as a pillar of their community and saying, wow, this guy is divine. He's the great power. Talk about a mess. Talk about postmodern mindset. Talk about somebody who says, well, there's really not any truth. How do you go to a people that says there are no truths and tell them that Jesus is the truth? So the Jews had written them off. And you would think that the Jewish Christians would have also written them off for good reasons. And yet Philip chooses to go to the Samaritans. Let me ask. Is there anyone in your life? Any person in your estranged family? Somebody in your neighborhood or at your work that you have written off? Is there maybe a group of people in our society that you have said, uh uh-uh. uh, they have gone against God's rules, God's law? They are beyond salvation. By writing them off, let me ask you a second question. By writing them off, who's playing God at that point? Yeah, Are you standing in God's place? Are you making a determination that this particular person or this particular group is beyond the hope of salvation? In the Old Testament, there's a prophet named Jonah. He made that same mistake. God says, Jonah, I want you to go and preach to the Ninevites, a brutal, horrible people. Surely, God, surely you don't mean to give them a chance to repent. But God loved them and said, I want you to go because I want to redeem them from their evil nature. I want to change them, Jonah. God loved the Samaritans. And though they had compromised and gone far from God's holy law. God loved them and wanted to redeem them. It was his plan all along. Back in Acts eight, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea. That's easy. Those are people like us, the ones who, who understand our language, who understand our lifestyle, our mindset. But then he says, but you're also going to be my witnesses in, there it is, Samaria. Whoa, 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 whoa. See, Philip was just being obedient to the vision of Jesus. For for Philip, if Jesus says, go to Samaria, well, guess what? Philip says, I'm going to go to Samaria. And I cannot write them off as unsavable. So as he goes, check this out. The people pay attention to his message. Go back to verse 6. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. And with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many. And many paralytics and cripples were healed. People's lives were being changed because of the message of the gospel. And there was great joy in that city. Wow. Don't lose sight of the goal, folks. It's not just about the miracles. It's about what those miracles represent. And the miracles always validate the message. And the message is that people can be saved with the Holy Spirit. Yes, he's going to come in. He's going to bring the conviction in people's lives. We're just told to bring the message to them. If you actually look at verses 18 through 22, you're you're going to find out that Simon actually becomes a Christian. He believes in Jesus. He is baptized. But he still has some stuff going on in his life that wasn't right. When Simon, verse 18, saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered money to them and said, "Ah, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. See, he, he was still relying on the power that he could get and, and to become more great in the, in the eyes of the people. Pride was his sin. Peter confronts him about that sin. He says, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. We're not letting you into leadership because you're not there yet. You have not grown and matured yet. You're still a baby baby believer here and you're still in your sin. Verse 22, Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. You see, yes, we still have Conviction of sin. But God, see God cares about sin. He, he cares about it because it's a cancer to our souls. But that's why he sends the Spirit to do the work of the convicting. The, the Spirit to go in and change people's hearts. The rebuke that Peter gives to Simon comes after he has professed faith. Peter did not say, You've got to get your act clean and then you can get to the Spirit of God. He says, once you get the spirit of God, he's going to start cleaning you up. It's like, do you have to take a bath? I mean, do you have to get cleaned up before you take a bath? No. That's what the bath is for. That's what the shower is for. When you come to the spirit of God, he will begin the work in your life. And we cannot put a bunch of hoops that people have to jump through before they can come to Jesus. Ours is not the work of the Holy Spirit. Ours is to proclaim the message of the gospel and then let God do the changing of people's lives. Let God save them. And then let God sanctify them. And that's really what we are right now. Now, something to address about the Holy Spirit that that is a little odd, that may confuse you if you read this in in its entirety from front to back. Look look at verses 14 through 17 real quick. I, I don't want you to be confused. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John, two apostles, by the way, to them. So when the apostles arrived, verse 15, they prayed for the Samaritans that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received... The Holy Spirit. Now, real quick, can you believe in Jesus and not have the Holy Spirit? Short answer: No, no, you cannot. The the Bible is very clear. At, At the moment of salvation, God's Spirit comes and lives inside of you. So, what is going on here? Well, this is just following the pattern of what Jesus said: "You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the world." Day of Pentecost, it was just Jews. And what happened on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came down as a, and landed on the Jews as a group. They received as a group. The Jews had now the Holy Spirit after they believed in Jesus. Well, now the Samaritans have believed in Jesus. And as a group, the Holy Spirit is coming down on them You don't don't see individuals later on accepting Jesus and then way, way later on after they take a class or two, now the Holy Spirit comes down on them. It's it's the sanctioning. That's why the apostles are there. It's the sanctioning of the Holy Spirit on this group of people, the Jews, God's covenantal people. And now it's coming to the Samaritans. Pretty soon the apostles are going to go out to the Gentiles and bring the Holy Spirit to them as well. So don't be afraid and say, Wow, well, I got baptized, I believed in Jesus, I don't know if I have the Holy Spirit. Yes, you do. Yeah, yes, you do. Be assured of that. And not only are you now saved, but now there is this work of sanctification. What is sanctification? It's just the process of becoming like Jesus, and it's not a work of you. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, That's the next event in Philip's life that I want to look at today real quick. It's going to show how the gospel is powerful enough to bring sanctification as well, to bring life change. Let's now look at the story as we pick it up in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Okay, done in Samaria, now go south to the road, the desert road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. So Philip started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now, I, I would love to say, hey, would you mind staying for another hour? Because there's so many nuances of this part of the story that I get so excited about. In fact, this last week, Clay heard me in my office. I, I was I was studying. I was going, whoa, whoa. And he kind of looks in at me. You know, What's going on? He goes, oh, no, this this is crazy exciting. I've, I've never seen it like this before. It's, it's pretty amazing. But there is. I'm going to just let you know of a couple things that you need to know about this man as an Ethiopian and as a eunuch. Now, what about his nationality, the fact that he was an Ethiopian? Well, please understand this. God has never, ever, ever discriminated against other races. In fact, when Solomon was building the temple, God made a provision in his temple to allow Gentiles... People who were not Jews to come, foreigners to come from far away to worship him in his temple. It would not have been unusual for an Ethiopian to go to the temple and worship God. But his identity as a eunuch, well, that's another story. A eunuch, well, a eunuch is a man who had either by birth or by the decision of his parents at birth or by a personal decision later on in his life had been either partially or completely castrated. Now, why would you do that? Well, sources will tell us that most parents would do that to their newborn boys so that their sons could move up the social ladder because it was the eunuchs that the kings would trust to work in their courts, So you might be a peasant, but if your son was a eunuch, he might actually be employed by the king because he didn't trust any other person around the queen or the rest of his court. A castrated man was safe, if you know what I mean. Whatever reason that this man was a eunuch, whether it's a personal choice or something his parents decided or even by birth... A eunuch would have been banned for being a part of the assembly of God. They would not have let him in. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 23. Verse 1 says this, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. You'd almost think that it was a dare to say, Hey, Trey, could you say testicles in church and get away with it? Just did. Twice. But look at that. Look at what God had said about eunuchs. Here, though God had said, you may not enter into my assembly, here is a man who had gone up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. It doesn't tell us this, but we could make pretty certain it's entirely possible and most likely probable that he would have traveled all that way for nothing because he would have gotten to the temple and they would have said, "Uh uh-uh, you are not allowed in. They would have prevented him from going to worship God at the temple. And here's the icing on the cake. There was nothing that he could do about it anymore. Think about that. If you're a eunuch, there's nothing you can do to make yourself not a eunuch. Folks, we have people in our society who have been deceived into thinking that some kind of alteration in their life, on their body, or in their circumstances. It would be the cure-all for all emptiness and all confusion. And they've gone through with it, and now they realize that that wasn't what they were looking for. Once they've done something about it, now, though, it's pretty difficult to go back. So what do you do about something like that? Well, I know churches who have turned people like that away. Said, sorry, Charlie. You've blown it. Can't believe you did that to yourself. Can't believe you went and did that procedure. You can't come back because there's no way for you to be made right with God. So he's probably turned away from the temple. But yet he still has this desire to know God. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah as he's going back to Ethiopia. What is he reading? He's reading from the part of, of Isaiah that says, uh, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. And who can speak of his descendants? That means he never had any kids, for his life was taken from the earth. It's very interesting that as he's reading this portion of scripture, he might have actually found some identification with whoever was writing to this. Humiliation. Deprived of justice. No hope for descendants, which would have been a big deal in the ancient world. Nope, sorry. Sorry, buddy. You kind of blew it. You made your bed. Now you gotta lay in it. How could this man be offered hope when the Bible is so clear that he was to be excluded. Well, ironically, the hope that he could find was in that same scroll that he was reading from the book of Isaiah, from the, from the prophet Isaiah. What is his hope? Well, you know what Isaiah chapter 56 says? It says, Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. In other words, their hearts are now seeking the Lord. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name that's better than a son or a daughter. That's the hope that eunuchs can have, that they are not going to be, pardon the pun, cut off from God's people. That God says you are not excluded if your heart is, is, is a heart after my own heart. Where does that hope come from? Where, where, where's the source of the hope? Isaiah 61, I delight greatly in the Lord, for he has clothed me. He has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. Our righteousness does not come from us keeping the law, folks. It's God that brings us holiness and righteousness and covers up our shame of whatever we've done to ourselves. And who is the hope? (laughs) Well, that's what the gospel message was all about. Acts chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who's the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about The good news about? That's it, folks. That's that's where it's at. It's through the power of Jesus' sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection. And this man was led to desire sanctification, a new life, a new heart. He wanted God to bring that righteousness to him. Look at verses 36 and 38. And they traveled along the road. They came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. I love actually how the NIV 2011 actually says this. It actually puts it like this. Um, He says, what stands in the way of me being baptized? Here's a man who had just been turned away from the temple because of what he had done to himself. No hope of sanctification up there. He sees water that represents new life, and he says, are you going to prevent me? And Philip says, absolutely not. Through Jesus Christ, you are included. No matter what anybody says, there is nobody who is going to be excluded from the offer of grace in their life. Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. He opens with a very sad story of a prostitute who had come to a Christian counselor for help. The the counselor had said, at last I asked this prostitute if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. And the counselor wrote, I will never forget the, the look of pure, naive shock. That crossed her face. Church? She said, why would I ever go there? I already feel terrible about myself. They would just make me feel worse. Shame on us, if that's ever our attitude, that you have to somehow clean yourself up before God will bring his Holy Spirit inside of you and clean you up. Keeping those who truly need sanctification from finding it simply because we don't believe that the gospel is powerful enough to both save and sanctify, and somehow it needs our permission to work. Folks, life is messy, ministry is risky because it's not just about us. What is our calling? To go to go beyond our comfort level. And so we leave this place on a Sunday morning and we go to Pryndale at 5.30 tonight and we engage with some people who need to know who Jesus is. We needed to share the gospel with people who might not understand us, who, who might live with a different worldview than us, who like different kinds of music than we do. We need to trust in the power of the gospel to both save and to sanctify those who will hear the message that we bring.